you so much, Ben, for that children's message. And uh, Cliff, thank you for taking all the complaints for me this week. So, yeah, if it's too hot or it's too cold in here, either way for you, just see Cliff at the end of the service. And I do have one complaint, Cliff, and that's that your son, the chairman of Deacons, took the last blueberry donut this morning in the atrium. So I will expect you to handle that and deal with that after church today, okay? Last week, we started a new sermon series on family goals, setting family goals. And, you know, summer is a time, I know for my family, that we often set some goals for things we want to get done, things we want to accomplish, places we want to go, uh, maybe some habits we want to work on before school starts back. So I thought this was a good time of year for us to think about how we can set some goals to, to thrive as the kind of families that God designs us to be and wants us to be. Uh, God created the family. It was His idea. So it only makes sense that if we want to have happy, healthy, thriving families, we listen to what God has to say about that. Last week we looked at moms and how moms can help to lift their families out of the chaos of this hectic, busy, stressful culture that we live in. And today, as we do what families do, families gather around the table. We're going to gather around this Lord's Supper table today. I thought we should shift gears to thinking about how we can be the kind of church family that God would have us to be. How can we thrive as a church family according to God's design? So what kind of goals should we set as brothers and sisters in Christ? And I can't think of a better one than for us to do what our New Testament reading says, that new command that Jesus gave us as He was instituting the Lord's Supper, and that's that we should love one another as Jesus loves us. That should be a laudable goal, I think, for us as a church to strive toward. And and if you think about it, you know, we spent a few months looking at Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection in detail, the greatest demonstration of His love. And we see through the crucifixion and resurrection that Jesus' love for us is a self-sacrificing love. He doesn't love us as we deserve. He loves us better than we deserve. He loves us freely. He forgives us freely. He's infinitely patient with us. He promises to never leave us nor forsake us, but to be there to help us through every circumstance. I think you'd agree. Jesus has set a high bar for how we should love each other, right? It's a lot to live up to. But what does that look like in our day-to-day life? As we rub elbows with each other and the inevitable friction that's going to happen. How do we do this when sometimes, let's be honest, we aren't always the most lovable people, right? How can we love one another as Jesus loves us? Well, in the New Testament, we have a great example of this. And we've looked at this book before, and I think it bears repeat and and looking at it again. Uh, And that is a personal letter that Paul wrote to his friend, a leader in the Colossian church, a man by the name of Philemon. It's not Philemon. Okay, he's not from East Tennessee. And it's not Philemon. He's not from Jamaica. It's Philemon. Just going to get a little personal peeve in mind. I just get that out there. So if you'll turn with me to the book of Philemon, we're going to look at this letter and how Paul was helping Philemon to love others the way Jesus loves him, especially since Philemon was a leader in the church there of Colossae. So let's look at Philemon verses. There's no chapter. It's just verses, just one chapter book. So let's look at uh, verses 1 through 3, and before we do that, let's pray. Father, thank you for this church family. And I'm thankful, Lord, that this is a family that does not uh, overly complain. It is not a church family, Lord, that is contentious. 
And we, can, we kind of joke about that because we know that this is a church family that loves each other, that loves you. We're not perfect, but uh, even more so, I think that we're a church that is very gracious and patient with one another. And I pray you would help us to be that even more, to embody that even more. Help us, Lord, to strive even more than we already do to love one another as Jesus loves us. Speak to us through your word, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice in these verses the different kinds of relationships that he mentions. He calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker. To Apphia, our sister. To Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from our God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you look over at verse 23, he mentions another one about Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. So in this letter, Paul talks about family, friends, co-workers, fellow soldiers, those who fight alongside of you, and fellow prisoners, those who endure trials with you. And if we think about it, just about any relationship in our life, particularly in the church, can fit within one of those descriptors. And, of course, the bedrock upon which all those relationships are built is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the book of Philemon really is a book that's all about relationships, but the key focus is this relationship between Philemon and his former slave, Onesimus. Uh, Onesimus belonged to Philemon. Uh, he could have been a slave because he was a, a prisoner of war and, and Philemon bought him. It could be that uh, he owed Philemon a great debt and so Philemon took him on as a servant to pay off that debt. We're not sure that background, but we do know that Onesimus ran away. He was an escaped slave and he ran away from his master and he ends up where Paul is and he gets to know Paul and Paul leads him to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Onesimus becomes a Christian. And he becomes convicted that he needs to go home and make things right with Philemon, who is no longer just his master, but is his brother in Christ. And how does that relationship with Jesus transform that relationship? That's the heart of this letter. And so as we look at it, it can help us think through how we can become a stronger church, how we can love one another as Jesus loves us. So let's discover here some qualities that we need to embody if we're going to be a church that thrives by God's design. And the first we see in verses 4 through 7, and that's that we need to be encouragers. We need to be encouragers. He says, I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers, because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. You know, central, I think, to our relationships with each other is an attitude of gratitude, right? If we can have grateful hearts, it keeps us from being self-centered. It helps us to be more other-centered. It helps us to stay positive instead of negative. It helps us to be encouraging instead of critical, to have that attitude of gratitude. Charles Schwab worked for Andrew Carnegie and had an innate ability to motivate other people to success. And for, for that reason, uh, Charles Schwab became the first person in America to earn a million-dollar salary. And he was later asked about the key to his success, and this is what he said. 
The way to develop the best that is in a man is by appreciation and encouragement. There's nothing else that kills the ambition of men as criticism. I never criticize anyone. I believe in giving a man incentive to work, so I'm anxious to find praise, but loathe to find fault. How can we become the kind of people like that that build other people up rather than tear them down? Look at verse 5 here. In verse 5, Paul mentions specific things he's thankful for about Philemon. He talks about his love for all the saints and his faith in Jesus. He's He's not being disingenuous here. Paul's not just trying to butter up his friend. He's trying to build up his friend. He's recognizing things about him and he builds him up not only in his words here, but he builds him up, he says, in prayer. That he encourages his friend in prayer. And I think that when we praise others and pray for them, it only helps them become the people that God wants them to be. It helps them to be their best for Christ. One specific thing that Paul praised Philemon for is also in verse 7. He says, I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. What a compliment. Could you imagine somebody telling you, you refresh my heart? We all need friends that refresh us. We need to be the kind of friends, the kind of church family that refresh each other's hearts. Sort of like the other day, Abby and I were out doing some mowing and some weed trimming and and, and hedge trimming, and it got hot, we were all sweaty, and we talked about how much more you enjoy that glass of iced tea. That cold bottle of water when you've been working hard. It refreshes you. What if we were that kind of people that we could be as refreshing to one another as a a glass of iced tea on a hot summer's day? Rather than sitting around waiting for others to appreciate us, what if we looked for opportunities to appreciate others? That we just didn't look for ways to point out where people are wrong, but what if we watched for people to do what is right and praise them for that? What if that was our mentality? And it doesn't have to be something huge. It can be as simple as a pat on the back, as a simple thank you. Those can be powerfully motivating things. And that's something I think we need to do more of as a church. We need to celebrate with each other more. We need to appreciate those who are working and serving and to tell them thank you. When's the last time you thanked one of our deacons? When's the last time you expressed your appreciation to your Sunday school teacher? When's the last time you told one of our greeters how welcome they make you feel when you come in the door? What if we developed the kind of culture that we went out of our way, that we got creative with ways that we can refresh each other's hearts through appreciation and encouragement, to celebrate the successes that we share together as a church? And don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about seeking self-approval. I'm not talking about seeking applause for ourselves. The Bible tells us not to do that, right? We aren't to seek the approval of men. We aren't to do things for the praise of others. But on the other hand, the Bible does command us to affirm and encourage and give thanks to others. So it's not about seeking this for yourself. It's about looking for ways that you can acknowledge other people and say thank you. We need to be encouragers if we're going to love each other as Jesus loves us. Secondly, we need to be team players. Look at verse 8. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son Onesimus. 
I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very own heart. I wanted to keep him with... I'm going to get ahead of myself. I'll stop from verse 11. Once he was useless to you, but now he's was useful to both you and me. And Paul's playing on his name. Onesimus means useful. So Onesimus hadn't been living up to his name, but Paul is saying now he does. He's living up to that name of usefulness. Here in this description and this issue over Onesimus, we see the potential for a win-lose or a lose-lose situation. This could go south very quick. And, and we have to be sure in our relationships that we don't develop an attitude of competition with each other, right? That we don't develop that kind of pattern where one person's always winning the argument or one person's always giving the orders. That's a win-lose relationship. Competition is not good in the body of Christ. But we also don't want to be, you know, compliant, just always giving in, going along to get along, just, you know, saying whatever we think the other person wants to say because we don't want to rock the boat, because that kind of person can appear compliant on the outside but is often resentful and feels dominated on the inside. That's a a lose-win relationship. But on the other hand, the result of either of those extremes, oftentimes we just kind of become complacent. And, and that's just a lose-lose situation where neither, neither person's putting much effort into the relationship. And if you don't have much expectation, you're not going to get much result. And, and that's not healthy for a church as well. We need a win-win way of relating to one another, something that's mutually beneficial. It's not competitive. It's not compliant. It's not complacent. It's cooperative. We need to be cooperative because guess what? We are on the same team. We are members of the same family. We should be working towards the same goals. And and I love there in verse 11 what Paul is talking about. There is this win-win that Onesimus can be useful to both you and to me. It's a win-win situation. And when we take that kind of cooperative approach, we want to see the whole team succeed. There's no room in the church for people to say, that's not my responsibility. That's not in my job description. There's no room for that. We need to be what I call all hands on deck. If we're going to fulfill the Great Commission and glorify God, if we're going to reach our neighbors and the nations for Christ, if we're going to make disciples for Jesus from from every generation, it takes every one of us working together. We have to be on the same team, pulling together in the same direction. And that's the kind of approach that Paul took. Rather than commanding Philemon... He encouraged him to do the right thing. He didn't pull rank. He didn't didn't throw his weight around and lean on that authority. Instead, in verse 9, he said, I appeal to you in the basis of love. He's encouraging and challenging Philemon to live up to his name. Because just as Onesimus means useful, Philemon means loving one. He was a loving one. And Paul says, live up to your name the way Onesimus has lived up to his. And I pray that we can have the humility to be like that, to be peacemakers who are always seeking the best for others, not just ourselves, to be able to set aside our ego so that we can work together, that we won't think of ourselves as having our own little silos, our own little kingdoms in the church we've got to defend, but rather we are all together in it, pulling together to win. It's a team effort. 
So we need to be encouragers. We need to be team players. And third, we need to be forgiving. Let's go back to verse 12. I am sending him back to you. I'm sending my very own heart. You can just see the kind of relationship that Paul has developed with Onesimus. He says, I'm sending you my heart. He doesn't want to send him. He wishes he could keep him there. He says, I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. Why? Because legally, he belongs to him. So that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Listen, what Paul is saying there is nothing less than revolutionary. The idea in the Greco-Roman world of the first century that a master would welcome back a runaway slave, no less, as a brother, as an equal, and would set him free after he had already run away, you just didn't do that. It was inconceivable. Paul, what Paul's asking for here is a big ask. And no less today do we need to be revolutionary in our love and forgiveness as a church. Listen, relationships are messy, aren't they? Because we often do become competitive. We often can be compliant or complacent. We say things, we do things that hurt each other, we're hurt by each other. Relationships can be rewarding. They're vital, but they can also be really difficult and messy. Instead of building up the body of Christ, we often build up walls of anger and bitterness that damage and destroy our relationships and the witness that we have for Christ. Don't forget, every person in your life, every relationship with you that you have is a gift from God, has been entrusted to you by God. You are a steward of those relationships, and God will hold us accountable for what we do with those relationships. And if we allow those relationships to be broken because of bitterness and pride and anger and unforgiveness, God will hold us accountable for that. Look at Onesimus. Onesimus hurt Philemon. He betrayed his trust. He broke his heart. And now Onesimus, a Christian, a changed man, still has to face the consequences, the reality of this broken relationship. Not just with his former master, but now with his brother in Christ. And so he's on his way back to Philemon, carrying this letter, carrying the letter to the Colossian church, trusting that Philemon is going to forgive him. And, and this is a perfect example for us of, a, of an important relationship principle. It takes two to mend a broken relationship. It takes two. It takes the offender, Onesimus, the offender, needs to show remorse, needs to genuinely repent of their actions. Listen, if you are one who has offended someone, admit it. Don't pass the buck. Don't try to excuse yourself. Don't try to justify yourself. Say you're sorry and make amends the best you can. So what Jesus says in Matthew 5, He says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're coming to this Lord's Supper table this morning, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, you've done something to them, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. 
And that is something for us, especially remember this morning as we come to this Lord's Supper table. Is there someone that you've offended? Someone that you've hurt and you've wronged? You need to own up to it and go to them and say, I am sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. The healthiest long-term relationships are with people who know how to say those very things. I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Those can be hard things to say, but they are vital. But then there's the offended. When the offender does that, the offended's responsibility is to forgive. Forgiveness is a powerful force in our lives. Really, forgiveness brings out the best in us because when we forgive others, we're being most like Jesus. We're being most Christ-like when we are forgiving those who have wronged us. And in a Facebook world where we can unfriend people because they made us mad, our churches must show what true relationships are like and must model forgiveness to this world. We live in a cancel culture world where you say or do the wrong thing and that's it. I write you off, I unfriend you, you're done. But Paul tells us in every one of his letters he talks about forgiveness. In Colossians 3.13 he says that we are to bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. To the Ephesians he says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And here in verses 15 and 16, that's exactly what we see Paul asking Philemon to do. And who knows the good that God can bring out of the hurt that you've inflicted or the hurt that you've endured, perhaps even making that relationship stronger than it was before. Like a broken bone can heal back stronger, your relationship can come back stronger. Anyone can be unforgiving. Anyone can harbor unforgiveness in their heart and be bitter. That's easy. It takes no effort whatsoever. No courage. No strength. The truly heroic thing to do is to forgive someone. That's hard. That takes sacrifice. And a church filled with humble, forgiving heroes of grace will truly shine like a light in this world that we live in today. We need to be forgiving. Number four, we need to be committed. Look at verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me your very self. So Paul kind of throws a little bit of, you know, maybe a little bit of guilt in there just to remind him, you know, how much much Philemon owes him. Yes, brother, may I benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart. So he's going back to that idea of refreshing the heart. Refresh my heart in Christ. Since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. You know, you've probably heard the expression about crossing the Rubicon. What does it mean to cross the Rubicon? It means to go past the point of no return. It means that you're committed. You are all in. There is no going back. And it harkens back to Julius Caesar and his military campaign to to become the ruler of Rome. And when he crossed the Rubicon River, he had committed himself and his troops to the advance on Rome. There was no going back. And, of course, for him it paid off, and he became the, the ruler of Rome. But there's a Rubicon in every relationship. That line that once we cross it, we're committed. We're all in. 
We've got skin in the game. There's no going back. Paul, in this letter right here, he's crossing the Rubicon for Onesimus. In verses 17 and 18, he's vouching for him. Paul is putting his reputation on the line for this former slave. Because Onesimus, he had a terrible reputation in his hometown. He's a runaway slave. He was a man that couldn't be trusted. But Paul wanted to help him get a fresh start. Paul cared more for Onesimus' future than he did his past. And he wanted to help him. And so, no matter what Onesimus had done, Paul is saying, I'm going to be by your side. I'm going to help you through this. I'm going to help you get a fresh start. Maybe you know someone like Onesimus. Someone who's got a terrible reputation. They've messed up in a big way. They've, they've blown it in a public way. What is your attitude toward them? Are you a gossiper? Making sure that everybody knows the news about what happened to them? You know? Maybe they should have waited till after the wedding. You know, he might get out of jail this time if he behaves himself. You know, this is their uh, third divorce. Good luck on the next one. I never trusted her anyway. I never thought she really changed. I wonder if he can stay sober this time. I'm not surprised they got fired. I always had my doubts. What was Onesimus thinking? Did he really think he could get away with it? You know how those conversations go. You know those little asides are said and the damage that they can do like arrows in the heart of someone and their reputation. But Paul commands us in Ephesians 4.25, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Oh my goodness. If the stuff we said or the stuff we put on Facebook or Twitter, if we ran it by this, I think it'd be about this much. Does it benefit those who hear it or read it? Is it building others up? Is it meeting their need? Gossip is unwholesome talk no matter what you call it. A prayer request? <laughs> if it's gossip, it's unwholesome. Will you seek to tear others down in how you talk about their mistakes or their struggles? Or will you be a helper who makes direct healing contact with others in a way that changes their lives for the better? Are you seeking to build them up according to their needs, to benefit them and those who hear you? I think that's a pretty simple little litmus test that we can run on the things we say. Don't be a fair-weather friend either. Be the kind of friend that sticks with someone through thick or thin. I read a description of that kind of friendship like this. It says, Today I'll be a friend. No conditions, no reservations, no expectations. I will simply be a friend. And nothing my friend does can change that. He doesn't have to follow my script in order to be my friend. That kind of friendship takes love, agape love, a love that's undeserved, unmerited, a love that doesn't ask for anything in return. It takes loyalty. That means that you are going to invest yourself in that relationship and it takes going the extra mile. And we see Paul being like that for both Onesimus and Philemon in this letter. And we see that he tells Philemon in verse 21 that he expects that of him. He expects him to go the extra mile for Paul and for Onesimus. He's saying that Philemon, you're a loyal friend. You always go above and beyond for those that you love. 
Shouldn't that be the kind of church member and the kind of friend that we are to each other? To love each other? To be loyal to each other? To go the extra mile above and beyond for each other? Paul is trying to bring out the best in Philemon. He's expressing his confidence that Philemon is that kind of person. We need to express that same confidence in one another. To believe the best about each other, to bring out the best in each other. Because we are committed to one another. Are you committed to your church family? And finally, we need to be accountable. If we're going to thrive as a church family the way God wants us to be, if we're going to love each other the way Jesus loves us, it takes accountability. Let's finish this letter off beginning in verse 22. Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me since I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul says he wants to come to them. Why? Because he wants to inspect what he expects. He wants to hold Philemon and Onesimus accountable to each other. He wants to make sure this relationship is being reforged. So he wants to go there. He wants to be there in person with both of them. Accountability is essential. It's the ability to be open and let in those that you love, that you trust, that you know are committed to you, to let them into your life so they can speak truth to you. That's what it means to be accountable. Is there someone in your life who's earned the right to ask you the tough questions? We need to have those people in our church. We need to have those kind of people in our Sunday school classes, in our small group ministries. Those kinds of relationships of accountability are so important for us. And it requires a few things from us. First, it requires us to be authentic, to be real. Listen, I don't want us to be the kind of church where people feel like they've got to plaster on a fake smile and pretend like everything is okay. Because we know everything's not okay, right? Life is messy. Life is hard. Sometimes we, you know, kind of fuss at each other a bit to get ready for church. Parents, right? I mean, we, we, we've been there. And we can kind of come to church, and it's been a, a hassle and hectic all morning, but as soon as we walk in the doors, we're like, everything's great. We need to be authentic. We need to be real with each other. We need to be approachable and available to each other. And we need to be both teachable and truthful to each other. And to be truthful means that I speak the truth to you in love and from a place of love. And the loving thing to do, culture says, the loving thing to do is to be truthful with people. But to be teachable means that I'm humble enough to let you do that. I'm humble enough to know I don't have all the answers and I can't do it all on my own. Amen? And to be teachable means that I'm open to hearing what God might be saying to me through you. And again, our small group ministry, our Sunday school classes are a great place for us to be authentic, to hold each other accountable, to be available to each other, to be truthful, and to be teachable. To become a church that loves one another like Jesus loves us, to thrive as a church family by God's design, we need to encourage each other. Work together as a team. Be willing to seek and grant forgiveness to one another. We need to be committed to Christ and each other and hold each other accountable. And as you think about all these essential elements of what that looks like, what is God saying to you today? Which of those five things do you need to be working on today? That you need to ask God to develop in your life this morning. Is there someone you know you need to encourage? 
Someone that you need to forgive or seek forgiveness from. Who do you need to cross the Rubicon for today? Maybe you know you need to commit yourself more to the church, to serving in the church, to being a part of a small group or Sunday school class, some place that you can speak the truth and hear the truth spoken to you. But above all else, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you can't relate to anyone in this building this way because they're not your family. They're not your brother or sister in Jesus if God is not your Father. As we come to this table this morning, we remember that Jesus Christ willingly laid down His life. He shed His perfect, precious blood so that you could be forgiven and made right with Him. Paul opens and closes this letter with the phrase, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's what it's all about. From beginning to end, it's about grace. And we can't be gracious people and forgiving people if we've not experienced His grace and been forgiven by Him. So this morning as we sing in just a second, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you don't know that God is your Father, I invite you to come today. Make that broken relationship right. That relationship with God broken by sin before you worry about any other because that's the one that has eternal implications. And then we need to work on rightly relating to each other. It's the vertical and it's the horizontal. And before we come to this table, make sure you're right with God. Make sure in your heart you're right with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's stand together and pray. And I hope that you will come and respond as God's Spirit leads you. Father, thank You so much for the grace of Christ. Thank You, Lord, that You don't treat us as we deserve. Thank You that You are infinitely patient with us and that You seek to forgive us no matter what we've done. And if there's anyone here that needs to experience that today, I pray they would come. And because You have so loved us and forgiven us and accepted us freely by Your grace, may we do that with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. God, help us to be right in our relationships with one another. Lord, help us to use Paul's letter to Philemon as our example, as our charge to be this kind of a church family. It's in Jesus' name we pray.